I am thrilled today to have Caroline McGraw, author, speaker, just an incredible person (laughs) here in the studio today to talk about her new book, You Don't Owe Anyone. We are going to be diving into processing shame, emotion, and the boxes that we are put in as kids that we don't even decide for ourselves. She goes into all of these things and so much more in her new book, and I'm honored to have her in the studio today to talk with me about it. So without further ado, here we go. Welcome to I Get It, the podcast for modern women who don't want to live mediocre. We're balancing babies on our hips, typing out that important email and flipping pancakes at the same time. Not to mention, keeping things steamy with our husbands right before we put on our face mask for the night. It's not easy, and you are not alone. I'm your host, Tara Wages, and I get it. Welcome to today's episode of I Get It. I am your host, Tara Wages, and I am so excited because today in my studio, I have the incredible Caroline McGraw, author, speaker, coach, who helps thousands turn perfectionism into possibility. Caroline, you have a resume of where you have been featured. Huffington Post, TEDx, you have two TEDx talks with over 20,000 views, which is absolutely incredible. You've been blogging for years, which is awesome. And I'm just thrilled to have you sitting right here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Tara. I appreciate it. Thank you. You moved to Florence how long ago? How many years have you been here now? Gosh, we moved here in the summer of 2012. Okay. So it's been some time. It has been some time. I remember when you moved here, hearing, you know, like, oh, there's somebody new in town. You know, she's a writer. And just, that's rare for Florence, you know? And we met and you knew some of the, like, business people. Because we also, with our video production interview authors and coaches and we knew some of like, of the same people and nobody here really knows that world mm-hmm. and so I was like oh we have somebody here that like knows what is up outside of this area so it was very exciting and very cool and now just seeing what all you you've created right here from just a few doors down from my own house like we have somebody cool in our neighborhood like that's pretty awesome so oh, well, the feeling is mutual. Thank I'm you. Glad to have you here in our town. And Caroline reached out several weeks ago now and said, "Hey, I just wrote a new book, getting ready to launch it. Would y'all like to be a part of my launch team?" That's what authors do when they write books. And I looked at the title, and the title is, "I don't owe." anyone you don't oh sorry I'm gonna say that again no I love that you took it you're like I'm gonna Uh, run with it no I'm gonna take it personally here (laughs) I have taken this book very personally like I don't owe anyone Mm -hmm. the actual title is you don't owe anyone but I have been reading this as if it is written for me and how now I'm like putting myself out into the world and so when I read the title I was like oh snap yes I will help you with this, but also, will you come on the podcast? And this was before I'd even read a a line in the book. I just knew from the title that this was powerful stuff. Mm. And so then she sent me the book and I've just been like, like totally in it, (laughs) you know, completely saturated in the book. It is absolutely incredible. And I can say that I've found it to be both very, very freeing but also very convicting. Mm. And I don't know if that's something that you were going for, but like 
for me, it's really good to be convicted by these words because that means they want to change me, Mm -hmm. you know, in in a really good way. And so I want to ask, what would you say, like, I feel like the purpose of it is pretty obvious by the title, but who would you say this book is for and what would you want readers to know about it? Yes. Yes. I'm so glad to hear that it is resonating with you and landing with you and freeing and convicting. It's the same for me. Okay. There are definitely moments where my closest friends or my husband will quote lines from the book to me at me (laughs) as you're struggling with this decision, but what about what you wrote in chapter 10? And it's, oh, right. Yes. Okay. I'm going to take my own wisdom there and I need to take my own medicine. So who is it for? It is for people pleasers, perfectionists, people who feel stuck in the try hard cycle of I've got to get it right. I've got to do it exactly right. I've got to stay on top of everything. People who like their control perhaps a little bit too much. And I certainly classify myself as one of them. And the idea for it really came about in 2015 when I got this series of Facebook messages from someone I hadn't seen in many years, and there was no context to the messages. It was just, I miss you. I miss you. I really miss you. And I felt really uncomfortable with these messages for various reasons that I talk about in the book. But I also wrestled with, should I respond? What do you do in this situation? And this is a very relatable scenario. Many of us have had this moment of someone reaches out to us, Something about it doesn't quite feel right, but then that tape kicks in of, what if they're struggling? What if they need help? Are you not being kind enough? Are you not being generous enough? So we override that initial gut reaction, which is like, oh, don't feel great about this, with all of the programming and all of the shoulds and have tos and supposed tos and expectations, they all kick in. And so I was really grappling with this. What do I do with these messages in my Facebook inbox? Yeah. So I went to my husband and I asked him what he thought. And instead of just saying, well, do it or don't do it, he went a layer deeper. He looked me in the eye and he said, you don't owe anyone an interaction. And I just went, whoa, stop right there. Say that again. He yeah. said it again. And I said, okay. I need to sit with that for a while. I need to think about that. I need to reassess my entire life in light of that statement. And then may I please write about this? May I quote you on that? Yeah. And he said, sure. So I wrote a piece that went viral on the Huffington Post. I then did a TEDx talk about it. And just over and over, I'm hearing from people saying, you know, this is landing for me. And there's something about this idea that I've been walking around for 10, 20, 30 years of my life thinking that I owe the world a certain version of me, or I owe the world my time, my energy, my money, whatever it is. And what if you don't owe anyone? Yeah. Yeah. That's so powerful. And there were so many like moments, like connection moments in the book as I was reading through it. And you just mentioned, you know, that statement, you had to like look back at your entire life of what that has done to you and kind of like unwrap it in your brain and like work through all of these moments now in this new, you know, perspective of it. And one of the parts that really stood out to me in the book that you had said was 
that we find ourselves in boxes. Like we're put in these boxes early on, these roles that we have to fill of what our expectations are and, or what others expect of us. So as kids, without even meaning to, our parents put us in this box of like, this is who you are going to be. And, and now for me as an adult, I moved away from home when I was 20 years old. I'm a different human being now mm-hmm. than I was when I moved out of my parents' home at 18. And I still find myself still being expected to be the who I was at that age. You know, like I'm still in that box of that kid of who I grew up as. And then I even found myself ironically wanting to fit in boxes as a kid, but feeling like that was the wrong box. Like I shouldn't be in that box of fighting against it. So what box did you find yourself in? Like, and how did you get into that box? Yeah, that is such a relatable experience. The comfort of being in the box of, I know who I am. I know what my role is. It's very well defined. But then the feeling of constriction and confinement of, wait, there's more of me that doesn't fit here. So for me, it was the good girl or the good child. And that is the first chapter after the introduction is you don't owe anyone the good child. And it talks about how that began for me. And in my family, I think it really was a response to the difficulty and essentially the trauma of my younger brother, Willie, was diagnosed with autism when he was three and I was five. This was in 1990 when autism awareness is nothing was nothing like it is today. And so in the wake of this very life-changing news, our parents did a great job you know, telling me about it and just saying, you know, we're all going to be okay. Willie's mind just works differently. They were very reassuring. The one question that I remember really clearly from the conversation is basically they asked me if I would be willing to, you know, help the family essentially of, okay, so all that we're asking from you is, will you be a good daughter and a good older sister? And I remember feeling so relieved in that moment of, oh, is that all? Is that all I have to do? I just have to be good? Okay. Yes. Yes, I will be good. And again, in that moment, it was a relief. It was like, this is your role. This is your box. This is how you're going to help. This is how, how you make everything okay. Or at least that's how I interpreted it. And in the book, I talk about how it became this very simplistic equation in my psyche of your brother is different. That's his box. And you are good. That's yours. And of course, I can now as a parent myself, I can imagine, wow, that's probably not what they meant by that statement. That's probably not what was meant to be communicated. That's how I internalized it. And that's how I took it and ran with it. And of course, there were many other experiences later that then reinforced, this is your job in the family is to be the good child. Your brother will be the rebellious one and you will stay in this lane. Yeah, I, reading that chapter, when I related to that, because I was, I was a good kid, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I would do whatever I needed to do to please my parents and make them happy and, and to stay in that box, you know, of being the good kid. And oh, I'm words of affirmation. And you mentioned, are you words of affirmation as well? Very much so. Okay, yes. Because you had said that words were as good as like a, a box of candy, you mm-hmm. know, and I was like, mm-hmm. I feel that. Um, and so I relate to that so much, but then I also found myself as a mom now, 
looking at my own kids and one thinking of what box am I putting them in, but how are they perceiving? Because obviously it's my job to make sure my kids grow up to be respectful and kind and generous and have compassion and empathy, like all of these things. And so I'm constantly like, be good, do good, be good. And how are they perceiving that from me? And Mm. am I putting an expectation on them that is unobtainable, you know? And do they feel this pressure? Because like my oldest is a girl. And I think that we as women take on more at times, especially being the oldest child. I was not. But from what I see, like the oldest daughters, it's like, okay, I've got to take care of everybody. My my daughter told me this week that she's the protector. You know, mm. she was like, I'm a protector. And I so badly am like, you don't, you don't have to be, you don't have to, to be this, but have I put this on you, you know? And she is such a great girl. And then she'll have this day where she's, having a bad day. And then I'm losing my mind because it's like, are you bad now? <laughs> you know, like, are you a disrespectful person all of a sudden? Do you, what do you need punishment? And so I'm reading this also like analyzing how my words are affecting my kids, mm-hmm. you know, and am I putting them in these boxes and expecting something of them that they can't give? And you also, you had just said it and you, in the book, you say, Two people can encounter the same external event and have very different internal experiences. And so that was your internal experience, that moment with your mom and dad of them saying, be good, you know? Yeah. And um, I find that to be very scary as a parent, you know, but then also now as an adult, looking back at my own life, thinking of what do I need to undo mentally to free myself from whatever box I feel like the world has expected me to be in? Um, and through all of this, you really talk about shame. And I, probably your shame started like that was putting the box of shame on, you know, of I have to be good. So if I'm not good, you experience shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And being, I'm an Enneagram three. And so I live in the triad of shame. I'm very familiar with what shame is, but it's still a new concept for me over the last few years. How does that differ from guilt? What does shame look like for people? Yeah, you really highlighted something important there that, okay, I have to be good. If I'm not good, what am I? Yeah. It's almost like this fear of annihilation mm. of if I'm not this, then do I even exist at all? Mm. Am I even worthy of existence? And that's my most basic understanding of the difference of guilt and shame. Guilt is, healthy guilt is usually I have done something wrong or I have crossed my own line of integrity, whereas shame is I am wrong or I am bad my fundamental nature, there is something messed up with me. (laughs) I did an interview once that was called, there was nothing wrong with you. Mm. It was very popular because one of those core messages of shame is there is something wrong with me. If they really knew what I was like, they wouldn't like me. Mm. That is, that's the the shame spiral in your head. There's something fundamentally messed up with me. And you talk about in the book, you wrestling with shame, you know, one reaching the point of identifying what that was for you in these moments in your life that you 
felt shame. And, and I love how the book is written because you tell stories, you know, and it's very relatable and it pulls you in, you know, in a way that I, I couldn't put, you know, I was just like reading and reading and reading. And so you talk about these moments as a child experiencing shame, even though it may not have had a name yet, but those feelings and then growing into an adult. And you talk about sitting in the shame to work through it. What does that look like? How do people do experience that? Tell me, how do I break free from this, Caroline? (laughs) Yes, yes. There is one story in the book where I talk about hosting a webinar online and seeing some of the names of people I knew in college Mm. appearing on the, the webinar attendee list. And I felt this really strange combination of, on one hand, I was delighted to see these people and in many cases hadn't interacted with them in years and was like, oh, this person's here. Oh, that person's here. But then it was quickly followed by this deep, deep discomfort. And I call it weird shame in the book. And I grappled with it after the webinar of what was that? What was it that came up for me? And I realized the reason I felt that way when I saw their names was because it was bringing up a part of my own self and my own life that I had not accepted yet, which was college Caroline, Mm. who was, you know, had the best of intentions, (laughs) but was in some ways lost. She was clinging to her more fundamentalist religious beliefs. She was also trying to be loving and accepting. It was just this strange identity place where I was changing from the person I was into the person I would become. And these were the people who knew me back then. Yeah. And I almost had this sense of, oh my gosh, I can't be leading this webinar on, you know, self-acceptance or self-love or anything because they know they know the truth about me which is that I used to be this this little fundamentalist and everything but then I thought no no it's the opposite that these people aren't judging me they're the ones who showed up because I like to think they saw the truth at the core of me they saw the actual me underneath all the layers of limiting beliefs Mm -hmm. and indoctrination and all of that and they cared for the real me and that's why they showed up yeah and so in the book I talk about the challenge isn't to get away from other people's judgments of you. The challenge is to look at, oh, where am I judging me? Mm. Where am I judging past me? And, you know, saying that she's not enough or that I can't love her, I can't accept her. So that was the journey for me of, oh, I get to look at college, Caroline, and can I, can I send love for the person that I was back then? Yeah, I, I understand that part of seeing names pop up, you know, anytime you put yourself out into the world doing anything, it's, it's one, it's very scary. And for me, I would much rather be in a room full of strangers than having anyone who knows knows me. Yeah. And mainly because my shame, a lot of it is centered around what people think about me and what they would say about me behind my back. And that is totally messed up. It's very unhealthy. And it's something that I'm working through. And you talking about that makes me realize as a person, what I need to ask myself is, have I accepted who I am to the point that I don't care what these people think, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I love you talk about rejection in the book, which I've experienced 
very deep rejection in my life and even in this last year. And for me in 2020, my lifelong very best friend has decided to end a friendship because Mm -hmm. we disagree on different political issues. Mm. And, um, and so I've had to come to a point of saying, one, I'm not the one who ended it and I'm fine accepting her where, who she is, but I'm also not willing to give up where I stand and what I believe to make someone else approve of me. Mm-hmm. And that is a really like big moment for me. You know, it's taken me yeah. 35 years because we've been friends for so long. I've bit my tongue for years. I've listened to different conversations and thought in my head, oh, I really disagree with that, but I don't want to fight. I don't want her to get mad at me. I don't want, I don't want it to be a thing. And so really this was years in the making coming. And of course, 2020 blew everything up. (laughs) And so now I've had to reach a point at 35 of saying, no, this is who I am. And it's painful that this rejection, you know, and, and I love reading your story of Raymond and the high five, you know, the moment that he put his hand out and how he perceived rejection and then moved forward with it and learning that lesson and seeing it. And I'm realizing I have to be okay with myself to move forward and know that who I am is not dependent on anyone, but who I am. And so that is really powerful in reading your stories and breaking this down for me. And it's going to be a process. Mm -hmm. I I told Caroline when she got here, I said, this is a book I'm going to need in my hands with a highlighter. (laughs) Like I'm going to have to highlight some of this and really gnaw on it because I'm seeing things in myself that I need to be working on, you know, to be free. Not because I'm a bad person, but just because I beat myself up way too much. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And a part of the shame you say in the book is we aim for the impossible, for perfection. Then we castigate mm-hmm. ourselves for failing. And so we've set ourselves up for this imperfect role. And for you, you definitely like reading your mindset through the words, having to be this girl, you set yourself up to be this person that ultimately was impossible Yes. And at what point did you realize that was impossible? That's a great question. No one's asked me that before. I mean, I think I still have moments. Like you said, it's an ongoing battle process. And I still have moments where, oh, I'm trying to be that again and still need that wake up call of, oh, right. That's incredibly unrealistic. You mentioned before we started recording, reading Untamed. And I literally had that by my bedside last night. And I was rereading the part where she talks about believing in ghosts and how the perfect woman is this ghost and how we all believe that she's out there somewhere, Mm -hmm. but that it's not real. There is no one living that imaginary perfect life. And so I need the constant reminders of that. But the other thing that's really helpful for me and that I put in the book is this idea that we have so many years of practice sitting in judgment of ourselves. Ooh, yeah, yeah. We're very comfortable with that position yeah. of, I screwed that up, I'm stupid, I can't be trusted, I can't handle this, whatever. And then if you offer someone, well, let's practice forgiving yourself. We all get really uncomfortable, which yeah. is hilarious, because it's like, well, if you have the authority to judge, 
you also have the authority to forgive. You're just, it's like a muscle group you haven't used. It's very, it feels very odd and kind of weakened in comparison. Yeah. So one of the things I put in the book is just this simple practice of when you catch yourself in judgment, actually saying out loud, I forgive myself for XYZ, or I forgive myself for judging myself as XYZ. And actually letting yourself hear that in your own voice is, again, simple, but very powerful. And training you to, you know, you've spent however many decades over here doing the judging. Okay, can I offer forgiveness or kindness or gentleness or whatever you want to call it if you don't love the word forgiveness? Like, can I offer myself something different? and actually practice that. It's going to take some time for it to become automatic, but it is possible to start treating yourself differently in the same way you could treat another human being differently, like you were talking about with your kids. Like, okay, I can practice treating them differently. Why can't I also practice treating myself differently? For sure. And you saying that makes me think about we, it's become like this big thing to practice gratitude, you know, gratitude Mm -hmm. practices in the last few years and how that changes our mindset and opens our heart and makes us feel happier, you know, by practicing that gratitude. And you shared the story of burning the rice. Yes. And you burnt the rice and I I know that feeling. And probably most people know the, the, that's like the perfect thing to say because man, I screw rice up all the time. And instead of just automatically being so frustrated about it, you immediately said, before you even went and opened up the lid, I forgive myself. For burning the rice. For burning the rice. Yeah. And that moment for you, just as a gratitude practice, shows us, oh, I'm frustrated today, but I love my house. I love my kids. I love these things. It changes how we feel. You saying, I forgive myself, that changed your entire night more than likely. Mm -hmm. Because if you had just been like, oh, I can't believe I did this. Well, next thing you know, you and Jonathan may be fighting because you're grumpy now about rice and you're impatient with your daughter. You know, not that you are, but I would be. (laughs) I would be impatient with my daughter when she did nothing wrong because I'm mad at myself over rice. Mm -hmm. Instead of automatically turning that moment into, it's okay, it's okay. I'm not a bad person because I burned the rice, you know? So reading that, I was like, that is really powerful. And it is very similar. I feel like in changing our reactions to things in a way that a gratitude practice does. And so if you are doing the gratitude, this should not be any more like squeamish, you know, than, than that. And I think it's really just our generation. I feel like we're really trying to change mindsets Mm. where we've before everything is just negative judgment or this is what's bad or this person has this. And we are really, I feel like trying to see the good and that starts within ourselves, you Mm. know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I love that you, you talk about that in the book. Um, Another thing that you mentioned that was very powerful and convicting for me is you talk about spending our life in savior mode. Mm. And you say that there is comfort in the stress. It feels safe, but it is also a power trip and is thrilling. How fast can I go without crashing? How far can I go on fumes? What if you didn't have to swoop in and save the world? Holy moly. That, those sentences reading that, because 
I mean, I'm going to admit that I spend my life in savior mode, Mm -hmm. especially after this year, feeling like the world is in flames. Every time we see everything, the news, all these things, like the world is blowing up. And I've literally said, who's going to fix it? (laughs) If if I don't do it, who is? If I don't get on Facebook and tell these people that what they're saying is actually not factual, who is going to do it? And I've put this pressure on myself and reading It's a Power Trip and Thrilling, that part was super convicting and I could feel, I could feel that. Who am I doing mm-hmm. that for? Who am I trying to save? And why do I feel like I have to do it? Mm-hmm. And so you say you don't owe anyone a savior. How did you reach that point in your life where you, who are you trying to save? Yes. Like you, I'm very comfortable in that over-functioning, I'm just going to make it okay, okay, I'm going to rush in and save the day kind of mode. And I think a theme throughout the book is that you change when the pain of staying the same becomes too great. Mm. So in some sense, I was lucky in that fairly early on in the book, I talk about my first real heartbreak and my first breakup and how it it forced me to come face to face with the ways I had tried to manipulate this person and the ways I had tried to convince them that they needed to be a Christian and be saved in the way that I was. And, yeah. and all of this at 15, I thought I had it all figured out and I had all the answers, which is just hysterical in hindsight. And so it was being willing to look at, wow, this is causing pain in my life. This is causing pain in the lives of the people that I love. It did give me that power trip and that false sense of security, but it also put on a ton of pressure. And that's kind of the flip side, what you're talking about. It's like, it's a rush, but it's also, how can you ever really rest? For sure. You can't. If it's your responsibility to save other people and to make sure that their lives turn out a certain way, then, you know, what greater burden could there possibly be on you? And... This is just a small example that I didn't put in the book, but it's been pretty profound. I realized that with our 21-month-old daughter, if her dad lies down on the couch or on the floor, she'll kind of look over at him like, oh, what's going on? But she's not super concerned and can move about her life. If her mom, if I lie down, she thinks there's something very wrong. And that was super convicting for me, as you've shared. I thought, oh my gosh, she is already learning that mommies have to be going all the time. And if mommies take a break, then something is wrong. And I thought, ooh, I do not want to pass this down to her because I see how it got passed down to me. I never saw my grandma take a break. I didn't see my mom take a break. They were always in savior service mode. And that was what they learned. And there were good reasons for that. That was how they stayed safe. But I thought, oh, we have... We have other possibilities now and I don't want my kid to have this to have this programming that she can't rest yeah. ever either. Yeah. So that's one small concrete way that I am working to overcome that old savior paradigm of no, I'm teaching her 30 seconds at a time that if mommy lays down, the world doesn't end. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. And I definitely already see that with my daughter and her feeling, I, I tell her all the time, you have the freedom that you don't have to be the mom. 
It mm. is not your job to make sure everyone else is okay, you yeah. know? And, and I can't figure, I'm like, at what point did she start feeling like this is what her life was to keep the brothers in line, to make sure no one got in trouble, to make sure everything was put up a certain way. How did I do this to, you know? And so I am trying to mentally figure out (laughs) one, how to undo what I've done. That's messed up already, you know, but also just like be that example for her, just like you said. And, and that's a huge part of it is just being the example of taking those breaks and even behind the scenes, taking a break for yourself. I had to take the break this year. I got off of Facebook because that's where a lot of my mental stress was coming from. Mm -hmm. But then also asking my mom for help, you know, with my kids, Mm. like I need a break. This is not just, Hey, I want to go out tonight. It's no, I cannot do this anymore. And I need help. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is step one of coming out of savior mode is asking for the help that you actually need so you are not burning out, so you are not breaking down, and so you can level everything out so you don't feel like you have to save anybody, (laughs) you know? Um, And that was really, I I don't know, I just, I loved reading your perspective on that and just something else I have to apply to my life. Um, Another thing you talk about is trauma that we experience. Mm -hmm. And I love that you refer to it as like little T trauma, because we experience trauma. We, we feel like trauma has to be this like big, huge thing that the police are involved or court or, you know, just all these things. But we experience trauma on smaller scales, but still trauma that we experience and that we go through. And you refer to that as the little T trauma. And there were several moments in your life growing up with an autistic brother, um, with a home that at times felt chaotic, Mm -hmm. that you were experiencing trauma on a regular basis. These, these moments, and you referred to them as like small cuts. And, And I've thought about this in the form of like a microaggression. It's these small things that add up over time. And you at at some point had asked your mom, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Knowing good Mm -hmm. and well, what she was experiencing was not okay. Yes. And she looks at you and she's like, yes, I'm okay. I'm okay. What would it have done for you if she had said, no, I'm not Mm. okay? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really profound question because for those who haven't read the book in context, my when my younger brother got to be a teenager, he started having these aggressive and violent and self-injurious meltdowns that we to this day, we don't know for sure what caused them, but it did contribute to the chaos and the trauma of living in the same space. After one of these meltdowns, I asked my mom, are you okay? She said, oh yeah, I'm fine. It was just traumatic, that's all. And I remember thinking, that is the oddest sentence I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're saying one thing, but you're also saying another. Like, there was a part of her, I think, that was trying to acknowledge that it was hard. Yeah. But it it does take some serious bravery, vulnerability, courage to say, no, I'm not okay. I wasn't okay. I'm really shaken up. And again, in a small scale way, something that feels nourishing to me every time I say to our little toddler daughter is 
you can have all of your feelings. Mm. If she's having a meltdown, it's there's a part of me, of course, that wants to be like, just calm down. Oh my gosh, I can't, my heart can't take seeing you like this. Yeah. But then it's like, you get to have all of your feelings. They're all for feeling. You get to have all of them. And I think for so many in generations past, they never got that message. Mm. It was like, nope, those feelings are off limits. You don't get to have them. You are not allowed. They did not get that permission slip. It was not modeled for them or handed down to them. And so I do think there would have been a lot of power in her saying, no, I'm not okay. I'm really shaken up and I'm really scared and I really think I need some help. And I can also see why that's a hard thing for a parent to say to a kid. Like that's a tough, tough admission to make. For sure. Yeah, I think about in reading that, how many times what it would do as as a daughter, as a kid, to know, oh, it's it is hard for them too. It's not just me yeah. that this is hard for. And you this comes alongside of the story that you tell about you starting school and your mom passed down. She's like, my mom told me this. And now I'm telling you this, find the person in your class that's more afraid than you are Mm -hmm. and be friends with them. And so that's what you did. And it got you through the day. But now as an adult thinking, what if we said, find the person in your class and tell them I'm also afraid. Yeah. And then you become friends with them. You know, you, you share that, that moment of we're both scared right now. And so having that, and, and I, there's a lot of moms that listen to this podcast and, and dads, hey dads, um, and have, being able to share with our kids, this is really hard and it's not just hard for you. It's hard for me too. And, mm. and we're going to get through this together and it's going to be okay. How powerful that could be. I love that. Yeah, exactly. Because in that, in that model of you're scared, I'm scared too then it's we both get to be human on an equal playing field versus the savior model is you're scared and I'm going to help you feel better. So I'm already kind of one up and it's not, you're not meeting each other eye to eye. There's always, I'm going to fix and rescue and that's how I'm going to be of value. Mm. And it's in the end, it's not nearly as vulnerable or satisfying as actually let's just be human together. Right. Right. And it also makes you feel with the savior model, if they're not scared, then you're broken. Mm, you or the, like you have no nothing to offer almost. Right. You're like, I'm not scared. Why Why are you scared? Even if they're not saying those words, mm. it, it's just like anytime right now I have, you know, four tiny humans and the older lady comes in, they're like, oh, enjoy every single moment. These are the best days of your life. And I, I literally told my mom recently, like, please stop telling me these are the best days of my life because I'm exhausted. (laughs) Like I am at my wits end every day. I'm having a breakdown constantly. And I don't mean this offensively, but you didn't live through a pandemic with young kids at home. Like, please stop this. That's not helpful for me. I need to hear you say it was really hard for me at times too. You know, like I lived through it in a different way, Yeah, but it was really hard for me. Because otherwise I feel like I'm not good enough. And there's something wrong with there's me. There's something wrong with me yeah. because I'm struggling as mm-hmm. a mom. Mm-hmm. And you obviously didn't if those were the best days of your life, you know. Yeah. And so being able to have the, those kinds of conversations with each other is powerful. And it helps really both of you come to that middle point together. 
Um, and so I, Caroline, honestly, I am obsessed with this book, truly. And I'm going to end, like, there were so many, oh gosh, I have two things that I'm like, which one do I want to say? That's okay. Go for it. There were two other points that you really made that I loved. And I'm just going to like, let's end with these two. And then you'll share where people can actually pre-order this book. And these are two quotes that you made in the book. The first one was when you are trying to make, and both of them have to do with making a decision. When you're trying to make mm. a decision, am I going to watch TV or I'm, I'm going to read a book? What am I going to do? You think go where life is. So what does that mean to you? Where is life for you? Yeah, that's one of my favorite things in the book as well. This idea that I spent so much time, we spend so much time trying to make the right decision or the best decision or the most productive decision or, you know, whatever the qualifier is. And when I got out of that mode, when I got out of the guilt, shame, what do I need to do to be perfect mode, I found I needed a different framework for how, well, how do I make decisions then? If I'm not just making decisions based on what's going to make other people happy or what I think I should do, how do I actually make them? What is the criteria? And I landed on this phrase. It came through in my journal. I'm not sure if someone else wiser than me has said it before, probably. But the phrase was, go where the life is. When you need to decide between two options, go with the one that feels like expansion, like Mm -hmm. vitality, like being alive. And so I shared that in the book and with clients, and I feel like it helps people break out of the, is it right or is it wrong? Is it good or is it bad? Mm. Because go where the life is, is a feeling. Mm. It's not an intellectual assessment. It's like you have to drop into your heart, to your body. You have to come at it from a different place to be able to answer that. So it's kind of a ninja move and that it forces you to get out of the, but is it right or is it wrong? It's like, no, I need you to feel into it. I just, and I feel like that's such an easy question to ask yourself, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when you're trying to make, and, and I love that you are even saying that with a simple decision. Do I watch TV or do I read a book tonight? You know, like for you, where is the life in that? You know what? I, I just absolutely love that. And then the second question that you ask yourself when making a decision, not that you only have two, but these are the two that stood out. Is it a hell yeah for me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a hell yeah for me? And so when you're trying to decide what do you want, is that a hell yeah? Yes. And hat tip to Derek Sivers who brought that question to my attention. It's actually really funny that you quoted that today because last night I came to my husband with, you know, there's this charitable contribution that we've been we've been giving to them for years and it's our our pledge is up for renewal essentially. And I don't know. What do you feel about it? I was totally passing the buck and I was asking for his thoughts before I had fully let myself think about what I thought. And of course, he right away kind of raised an eyebrow at me like, do you want me to tell you or do you want me? Do you want to tell me what you think? And I said, "Okay, you're right. And I went into this whole thing about how I really believe in the mission. I really feel like they're doing good work and I want to want to do another pledge. And he looks at me, he's like, if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no. And I was like, darn, I put that in the book. Now people can quote it to me. So my point being that not only do I continually come face to face with this, but the way that it is presented is if you are in a state of overload and overwhelm, Hmm. if you have too many options, which 
Many of us do. But if you're just starting out somewhere, it can make sense to say yes to a lot of things. But if you're at a point in your life or your career or your family or whatever it is where you're like, no, I have too many choices. I have too many good possibilities. Then you use hell yeah or no as essentially a stricter criteria for what's going to get your love and your attention. And it helped me to have that given back to me last night because it was like, oh, yes, I am in in that state of life, running a business, launching a book, raising a baby, all of these things where it's I don't have a lot of extra bandwidth. And so forcing myself to actually ask that, is this truly a hell yeah for me? Because if it's not, then I'm using energy and resources over here that are going to take away from things that actually are a true deep, big yes for me. Yeah. And coming off of that, I can say truly, this book was a big hell yeah for me. Thank you. I absolutely, I cannot wait to hold it in my hand. I can't wait to underline and highlight and really just sit with different processes that you, you talk about and whether it's the, you know, do nothing every day for 15 minutes or, you know, the act of forgiving ourselves or sitting in the shame, all of these things and and really just digging into my brain of how I am talking to my kids, you know, am I producing shame in them? Am I using shame against it? Like, how am I lifting them up and helping them feel their feelings instead of pushing them down and really just like taking a look at myself. I can't wait to do that. And this is such a great tool for anyone. If you struggle with shame, if, if you, we haven't even talked about, if you struggle with coming out of a toxic church environment, you know, we talk about, I had two podcasts about the church, you know, just a few weeks ago and the toxicity that can happen within some church bodies mm-hmm. and Caroline's healing from that. She, she's very open about what that looked like for her. Um, if it's a parent child relationship that you're trying to work through and really overcoming your trauma, whether it's a big T trauma or the little T trauma that you feel guilt about because it's not a big T, mm-hmm. you know, it's still mm-hmm. there and it's still trauma. This book you don't owe anyone is for you. And so Caroline, please tell everyone how they can find it. Yes. So it is available wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, all of the usual big ones. However, if you go to my website, if you go to a wishcomeclear.com, that is what's going to get you all of the fun bonus gifts that go along with the book. So Tara's going to have a specific link just for you guys as her listeners. I'm pretty sure that's a wishcomeclear.com slash Tara hyphen wages. And if you go to that link, you get a full pre-order bonus package, which is crazy. I made it crazy on purpose. It includes over 100 interviews with experts and people who are living this way of life, of living like you don't owe anyone. Because as Tara shared, the book is very much in my voice and in my story. It's kind of like if a memoir and a personal development book had a baby, it would be this book. But the interviews are 100 other voices. So I wanted people to have that to be able to experience, okay, maybe this story really will click for me. And maybe hearing it from this person's perspective will really help me. So just know that all of that is available to you, plus a whole bunch of other goodies. So a wishcomeclear.com slash Tara hyphen wages. Awesome. Thank you. 
And I will also have that link in my Instagram bio awesome. for anyone that just needs to click on something. You can find me at Tara Wages on Instagram. Caroline, thank you. I honestly, in prepping for this, I had so many points. Like, guys, the, we just skimmed the surface of this book today. It is absolutely incredible. Definitely go to that link and grab one up for yourself. And I'm so thankful for each of you for joining in today. I know that life is a little crazy and there are days that you feel a little crazy, especially when you are living based on someone else's expectations instead of what you actually want for yourself. You are not alone. I get it. Be happy and love each other. Peace.